0: Every now and then, I get some uh, pretty cool stories from other pastors as we listen to them in different venues and different settings. And I was in South Carolina a number of years ago, probably about ten or so, a long time ago. But this uh, this little story impressed me so that I went on the internet afterwards and wrote it down. It's a a man you may or may not know if you're familiar with Southern Baptist life. A man named Morris Chapman. He was preaching at a state convention in South Carolina. And he told a story about some things that were going on between himself, his son, and his grandchildren. Now, if you don't have grandchildren, just hold on. You'll know how exciting it is to be a grandparent. Some of you are great grandparents, and children can say the funniest things. But his son and his grandchildren had a a little game that they would play, and the son from time to time would inadvertently look at his children and say, who's got the power? And his children respond, daddy's got the power. Daddy's got the power. And he'd say it again, who's got the power? And they would say, daddy's got the power. Daddy's got the power. And Morris Chapman said that when they would come to his house, he would look at his grandchildren and inadvertently say to them, who's got the power? And they would respond, daddy's got the power. Daddy's got the power. And he would say, no, poppy's got the power. Poppy's got the power. Who has the power to transcend everything and transform every life? The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.10 said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So far in this lengthy study of Matthew 8 and now Matthew 9, we have been talking about the power of Christ to transform lives. We saw how Jesus left that Sermon on the Mount, and on his way to a city called Capernaum in the northeast section of Galilee, on the dusty road in the country, he runs across a leper who says to him, Jesus, if you will, I believe you can heal me. He says, I will, and he heals him. And that man's life was forever transformed. Why? Because Jesus has the power to transcend everything and transform any life that will put their faith and trust in Jesus. As he arrives into the city of Capernaum, he encounters on the city limits a centurion, a Roman soldier, who brings to Jesus' attention a servant, maybe one of his most favorite servants, who is at the close of death. And he asks Jesus to heal his servant. And Jesus said, okay, I will go. He says, no, no, no. I'm a commander like you. Just say the word, and he will be healed. And the it just astounded Christ. And he said to the people who were there, In all of Jerusalem I have yet to see or to hear anyone that has this kind of faith. And he said, So be it. It is done as you request. And as the man turned, the Bible said, his servant was healed. That servant on that day and that Roman soldier on that day, their lives were forever transformed. Why? Because Jesus has the power to transcend Everything and transform everyone. As he reached the city of Capernaum on the city limits, he runs into other things that are happening, but he makes his way to the synagogue, and it is the Sabbath, and it's important for him to worship on the Sabbath. And when he gets there, he begins to teach, as was his custom. And he begins to break forth the bread of life, the word of God, begins to teach. And his sermon is interrupted, according to Mark, by a man who is demon-possessed. And Jesus, in the midst of that sermon, stops, casts the demon out of the man, and that man's life is forever transformed. Why? Because Jesus has the power to transcend everything and transform anyone who would put their faith and trust in him. As the service is concluding, he makes his way back home for some dinner. It's the Passover. Many of us are going to leave here in a little bit and go to lunch. And uh, it's the Passover, and they're going to celebrate the Passover. And so they arrive in Simon Peter's home and Andrew's home. And while they are there, he learns as soon as he arrives that Simon Peter's uh, mother-in-law is sick. And so he walks into the room, and he touches her, and she is instantly healed. That Ladies, life was from that moment on forever transformed. Why? Because Jesus has the power to transcend everything and transform anyone who will put their faith and trust in him. Because of what he did in the synagogue, work quickly spread throughout Capernaum. and As soon as the Sabbath was over, the crowds, the multitudes from the city gathered at Andrew and Simon Peter's home. There were a lot of people there, the Bible says. And many who were there were oppressed by demons, and many had various different kinds of disease. And Jesus casts out the demons, and with the word heals everyone there of the various diseases. And those people left from that encounter with Christ back to their homes forever changed. Why? Because Jesus has the power to transcend everything and transform every life. He gets on a boat. Because the crowds are a little bit uncontrollable. And so they began to distance themselves going southeast on that sea in Galilee. And while they're out at sea, a storm arises. It erupts out of nowhere. Jesus is down below, fast asleep. The disciples above, as the ship is beginning to toss and turn, believe they're going to die. And they go down there finally and wake Jesus up. And they say, Jesus, what in the world is the matter with you? Don't you know that we're about to die? And he addresses their lack of faith because he's with them in the boat. He gets up on the dock and he speaks to the winds and they stop and the storm ceases and everything becomes calm. And the Bible says they were amazed. And I'm convinced that what they saw forever changed their lives. Why? Because Jesus has the power to transcend everything and transform everyone's life that puts their faith and trust in Jesus. They barely arrived ashore and step off onto the shoreline, and they are confronted in Matthew nine, uh, Matthew eight, I'm sorry, with two guys who are demon-possessed. And they speak to Jesus, "What are you here to do with us? Why are you here to mess with us?" And he says No, 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 let's have a conversation. In the midst of that conversation, he casts out the multiple demons that are inside of these two men that are wreaking havoc on their lives and the lives of the community. The demons leave into some pigs. They jump off a cliff and into some water, and they are drowned. And Jesus tells those two men, because of the transformation that they have received, he wants them to go back to their hometown and display through their testimony the glorious power of Christ as a testimony to the community. Their lives are forever changed and their testimony is forever a changing testimony. Why? Because of the power of Christ to transcend everything and transform everyone that puts their faith and trust in Christ. Following that encounter, we learn in Matthew 9, he's finally back at Simon Peter and Andrew's home. And the crowds again in Capernaum hear that he's there and there are multitudes that are there. There are four guys who are carrying their friend or maybe their family member, we're not sure to see Jesus and they can't get through. What do they do? They improvise. They dig a hole in the roof and they lower their friend down. Jesus, seeing their faith, looks at the man laying in front of him and he says, your sins are forgiven. And then he heals him of his physical needs. And he says, rise and walk. And the man rises from his condition and he walks. And his life is forever changed. Why? Because of the transforming power of Christ to transcend everything and transform everyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus. Last Sunday, we saw Matthew, who was minding his own business, literally. He was a businessman, a tax collector. And he was... Uh, someone who worked for the enemy, basically. He worked for Rome, and his Jewish friends despised him. He was a social rejet and a spiritual degenerate. He knew it, they knew it, everyone knew it. He thought God was finished with him, but yet he had spent his life in the acquisition of power through wealth. And while he was minding his own business, Jesus seeks him out and invites Matthew to follow him. And Matthew, the Bible says, rose up from that position in which he occupied, left everything, and followed Christ. And in that fellowship of Christ, his life was forever changed. As a matter of fact, we're reading from the gospel account according to Matthew. That's him. And his life was never the same once he met Jesus and Chose to follow Christ. Why? Because Jesus has the power to transcend the life of a sinner like Matthew, a social reject and a spiritual degenerate, and transform his life into a beautiful Christ follower, a disciple of Jesus whom he would use in extraordinary ways. Today we're going to learn in Matthew 9, verse 18, about a father who's concerned about his daughter. She is close to death, he believes, and he is he's, he's beside himself. He's tried everything to find a cure for his daughter to prevent her soon incoming death, and all of his attempts have been nothing but a waste of time. Jesus is the only one that he can reach out to for help, and he turns to Christ for help. We're going to learn as Jesus is making his way to help this father who's desperate for his daughter's condition is going to be sort of interrupted. There's going to be a little interlude where there's going to be a lady who is hopeless. Jesus literally is her last hope. Not her last rope, but her last hope. And he's going to take her hopelessness and give her hope. And he's going to forever change her life. Why can Jesus do that? Because he has the power to transcend everything and transform everything every life that puts their faith and trust in him as personal Savior and Lord. I'm here to tell you today that because of the resurrection power of Philippians 3.10, there are no hopeless, no helpless causes, for Christ can breathe new life into your lifeless body, and he can transcend whatever obstacle, whatever barrier, whatever sin exists in your life and transform you by his power into the beautiful creation that he has designed and purposed for you from the very moment that he gave you life and continues to keep your life the way that it is. Christ transcends everything and can transform even you and even me if we put our faith and trust in him. How does he do that? It's, it's simple. One word called grace and we're gonna talk about the grace exchange today. And that I give him nothing and he exchanges it for everything. For when I come to him helpless, he gives me help. When I come to him hopeless, he gives me hope. When I come to him lifeless, he exchanges my lifelessness for life. He has and will give us sufficient grace that is more than sufficient to transcend whatever need we may have and transform our lives. It is literally the grace exchange in the power of Christ to transform our lives. That, in my opinion, is what Easter is all about. The power of transformation. So I want to take a look at the text this morning and I want to first look at this father who desperately comes to Jesus. And we see that this grace exchange, Christ first gives help to this father who is helpless. He is beyond help and he comes desperately in an act of a concerned father. And notice in the verse, verse 18, it says, Matthew records it, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and kept And knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. The opening remarks of this beautiful narrative, we see that that Matthew is recording for us the atmosphere in the room. We know by our study last week that Jesus was reclining at the table in Matthew's home. And Matthew had invited all kinds of sinners, prostitutes, and tax collectors, and people who were social rejects and social outcasts because those were his friends and his relatives. No one would associate with him. And as soon as he met Jesus, he invited his friends and he wanted to introduce them to Jesus. And they're reclining at the table and after they have an encounter with the Pharisees who are upset with Jesus, he then has an encounter with the disciples of John the Baptist. And there's a question about fasting and it's a religious ritual and they they have this encounter, and Jesus is sort of conducting a class. School is in session, and he is the master teacher and not only the master physician. And when he sets them straight, this conversation is coming almost to a close when all of a sudden we see the approach of this ruler, this man we know in the other gospel accounts is Jairus. Jairus, it is described as a ruler. He is someone who has got power. He's got prominence. He's got position in the community. For you see, back in the first century when Jesus lived, the synagogue was the center of Jewish activity. It was where the community gathered. It was not only the place for spiritual activity where they would conduct church on the Sabbath and connect with God, but it was also a place to hold legal matters. And so if you were somewhat a leader or ruler over the synagogue, you were a pretty important person in the community. You had a lot of power. You had a lot of popularity. There was a lot of prestige that came with the position. And you ruled over matters of law, and you led the people in worship. And because the church was a center of activity in the community where all the social and spiritual and legal matters happened, it was a big deal for this guy to be the ruler or to be a leader in a prominent position in the synagogue. So he was well-known. And as a Jewish leader, to look to Jesus, it's not a small matter. Because you see, if word got out, he might lose his position. He might lose his political influence. He might lose any power that he had. And yet the desperation out of this father and his concern for his daughter, he put everything on the table and was willing to risk it all so that his daughter might be able to be well. And this ruler named Jairus risks everything and approaches Jesus in this setting where he is reclining at the table, and school is about to end, the bell is about to ring, and he just sort of bursts in. He's not an invited guest. Um, he was not an expected guest because he's not one of the sinners, and he's not one of the you know the non-elite in the community. Now, if you remember, we talked about last week. The Pharisees would not even dare come in to this setting because they were afraid that they might become ceremonially unclean because you know if you associate with sinners, you might become you know, unclean yourself. And they would never have come in. But Jairus isn't really concerned about his own cleansing or his own, you know, perception in the community. He cares and he's concerned more about his daughter than he is anything else. And he just burst into the room, uninvited, but with a plea. And he says, My daughter has just died. Now, we know by the other narratives and the other accounts and the other gospels that he believes she is soon going to die her condition is so grievous it is so difficult that he believes that his daughter is about to die and he pleads his case not only does he present and plead his case but he asks Jesus he said I, I'm asking you will you come and lay your hand on my daughter now if you remember the centurion that we talked about a couple of weeks ago he just said just say a word you don't have to come to my house just say a word and I believe she will be healed this guy is wanting Jesus to touch physically his daughter And there's something about touch. And that's his request. I'm not asking you to speak it. I'm asking you to come with me and to literally touch my daughter, to lay your hand on her so that she might be well. Notice what he says. So that she will live. He believes that if Jesus intervenes on behalf of his daughter's illness, she will be well. He believes in the power of Christ. You know, I want to stop here and just say this. If you're a parent or a grandparent today, your child, like this father's child, desperately needs Christ. And you must do everything in your power to make sure that your children encounter on a personal level the miraculous transforming work of the power of Christ in their lives. And we must do everything as parents and grandparents to make sure that we bring Jesus to our children or our children to Jesus, whichever is the case, so that they might be impacted by the power of Christ to transcend the culture and the community that they're living in today, which is, which is an atrocious community, in my opinion, and to transform their lives for the good so that they might, through the power of Christ, become all that he intended for them to be. And here we have a father who pleads his case to Jesus. Now, what does Jesus do? Jesus responds with a decisive act. And the reason that he does is because he's a caring savior. Notice in verse 19, and Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. I don't know if you find that interesting or not, but as I looked at the text, Jesus doesn't speak a word. He's silent. I mean, here's a father burst in on the scene and pleads his case, and petitions for Christ to come. He communicates his faith in Jesus, and he believes that Christ can heal him, and he listens to this plea, to this cry of this concerned father for the health of his daughter, and he just rises up. He doesn't speak a word. He is silent, but I think he also is sincerely concerned about her. That, that, that plea has, has struck a chord in his heart. And he hears this father's cry for his daughter. And because he is so sensitive to his need, he just rises up and he begins then now to submit to the request. And he follows the father out the door, down the road, and toward his home. And we see here that the crowd is about to follow Christ as well as he's following the man. I think it's interesting that we see that this helpless father turns to Jesus in a time of desperate need and Jesus, the compassionate savior that he is, helps this man because he wants to help his daughter. You know, I I don't know about you and what your concept or concern or, or belief is about Christ, but Christ isn't insensitive to you. He knows who you are, he knows where you are, and he knows what your needs are. And he so cares about you that if you, by faith, will turn to him and admit your helpless condition and look to him for the help that is necessary because you have, you have tried all avenues in your life, desperately seeking some sort of cure, some sort of miracle, some sort of thing or something that you can do that will transform your life. If you will look to him for the help that you need, he will help you for he cares for you and he's concerned about you. And he will come to your aid if you will admit your need. This father admitted his need and Christ came to meet that need. I want us now to look at what happens after we've learned that Christ not only gives help to the helpless, but he gives hope to the hopeless. Now imagine this. Jesus is walking. He's left the room. He's left the house. He's gone out the gate, and he's walking down the road, and there are many people who follow. It's not just Jesus and his father, but there's a a crowd of people that's there because they're not about to let Jesus out of their sight. And as he leaves the house, this crowd for from, from Capernaum begins to follow him down the streets of Capernaum as they're walking toward this father who's concerned about his daughter. He, he, he's going with the man, and the crowds are following. And we learn as they are making their journey toward this father's house to heal this girl of her disease that something interesting happened. There's, a, there's an intermission here. I remember when you used to go to those four-hour movies and there was always an intermission. Remember those? Anybody remember those? Anybody old enough remember those? I used to call that the bathroom break. You know? This is an intermission, but it's not a bathroom break. There's an intervention here in that there's someone who's going to intervene. There's a there's a, a moment of delay because there's a woman who has a desperate need. She has reached the end of her hope. And Christ is her last hope. And if Christ can't settle her condition, She will become hopeless. Take a look at the text in verse 20. Notice as Matthew describes her condition. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. There's a physical infirmity here that talks about the fact that this lady is hemorrhaging for how long? 12 years. That's a long time. A constant hemorrhaging. And there are no transfusions in this day. And so her body is having to make the blood as fast as she is losing it. And because she has constantly hemorrhaging, she is what the Bible calls ceremonially unclean, meaning that no one can come into contact with her or they too will become ceremonially unclean. She is not to be with her husband. She is not to be in contact with her children. She has lost the most intimate relationships of her life. She can't attend church. She can't go to church on Easter. There's nothing that she can do. She is cut off. She is ostracized. She is socially an outcast from the community that she loves for 12 years. And we learn in the other gospels that she has spent everything she has to find a cure and all of her efforts have fallen to nothing. Now we notice in verse 20, notice her courage where it says that she came behind him and touched the hinge or the fringe of his garment. This lady has a plan, man. I like her. She's she's got a plan. She's gonna plan her work and work her plan. And she has a plan. And this is her plan. I'm gonna follow behind Jesus at some strategic point, I'm going to find my opportunity because I know there are mobs and crowds of people that are around him. And, and because I'm not, to, I'm not to be in public, I mean, I can't go anywhere in public, and I'm certainly not to, not to touch anyone. And if I can conceal my condition long enough so that no one will know my condition, then maybe I can undetectedly work my way through the crowd and find my way to where Jesus is and just touch his garment. Just touch it. I'm not going to touch him, his skin, because I know that if I do, I might make Jesus' ceremony unclean, and I don't want to do that either, so I'm just going to touch the hem of his garment, and if I can do that, then I believe I will be well. She carries out her plan. I'm not sure how long she lurked in the shadows waiting for opportunity. But I'm convinced that she more than likely was there when Jesus walked out of Simon Peter and Andrew's home and they were walking down the street and she was looking for the opportune time to carry out her plan. And as soon as she found her moment, she mo- moved through the crowd undetected, unobserved, and touched the hem of the garment. She just reached out and just touched him. She didn't say anything, didn't draw any attention to herself. That was the main objective. She didn't want anyone to see her, much less know that Jesus uh, you know, had healed her and she was just going to touch the garment. That's it. And she carried out her plan. And we learn in the scriptures and the other gospels that the moment she touches the garment of Jesus, she is instantly healed. Wow. Can you imagine? Twelve years dealing with hemorrhaging. And all of a sudden, she just touches the hem of the garment of Jesus and she is healed. Notice what the scriptures say about her conviction. Why would she believe she could get away with such a thing? I mean, we don't see anywhere in Scripture this has ever happened before. Jesus has touched others, and they've been healed. And he's spoken words, and others have been healed. But no one has ever just touched him, and they've been healed. And I imagine in that crowd of people that are, that are closely snuggling in around Jesus, many are touching him, but no one is healed except her. And so here we see where Matthew gives us an insight into what she's thinking in her convictions. For she said to herself, no one else, she didn't divulge her plot or her plan to anyone else because if she did, maybe they would prevent her from accomplishing her mission. So she kept it to herself and she believed, if I only could touch his garment, I will be made well. That word if is the largest two-letter word in the English vocabulary, if. That is a condition that she believes must be met. If I, me, by myself, only. That word only means there's only one thing that I have to do, and only one thing. If I can only touch, just touch, his garment. But notice her faith, I will be made well. Incredible, incredible faith in the power of Jesus to transcend her disease and transform her life as she puts her faith in him. Notice verse 22, what happens. You know, she, she's successful. <laughs> she walks through the crowd, undetected, unnoticed by Jesus and the disciples and everyone. She reaches out and she touched the hem of his garment and she is healed instantly. And as she takes her hand away, she thinks, I've gotten away with it. And I'm just going to kind of go out like I came in, and nobody's going to see, nobody's going to know. But Jesus knows. Because we learn by the other gospels that as soon as she touched his garment, power went out from Christ, and he knew it. And what happens? It says here, Jesus turned. That means Jesus is walking, and he stops, and he turns. Uh Uh-oh. And it says not only did he turn, but he sees her. He looks her in the eyes. Imagine her horror. She has gone undetected, and then notice she's carried out her plan. She's not supposed to touch anyone because she's unclean. She has touched Christ, who she believes is the Messiah. And now he has stopped, he has turned, and he's looking at her. They're locking eyes, and eyes to eye. Now they're looking at each other, and he speaks to her. She's center stage. The spotlights are all on her. The crowd is gathered around, and now everyone is looking at her. That's exactly what she didn't want. And what does he say? He says, take heart. It's the words of encouragement from a compassionate Jesus who looks at this woman who's been dealing with his infirmity for 12 years, and he says, I don't want you to be preoccupied. I want you to just be at peace. It's okay what you've done don't worry about it. Let me encourage you. Let me me love you. Let me heal you. It's all right. And I think the moment he said, take heart, her, her anxiety level just went down. And she was at peace. And he says, take heart. And he says, daughter. He adopts her into the family. She's one of his disciples. He, as the great physician, is now her father, and she has been adopted. She is the daughter, and he says, your faith has made you well. Why does he clarify that? Because he wants her to know that it wasn't the fact that she simply touched him, but he wanted her and everyone else to know that she had been healed, she had been cured, she had received her deliverance because of her faith in Jesus, not simply because she had touched him. It was her faith that made her well. And Matthew records for us the cure in verse 22. In the last part of the verse, and instantly the woman was made well. He simply kind of throws that in there to help us realize, and those who read his gospel account, that the woman had actually been cured. Have you ever, at a time in your life, ever been hopeless? You've completely lost hope. There's nothing that you could do. And because of your hopelessness, you really had nowhere to turn. Didn't seem like there was going to be a rainbow at the end of your journey there was not a light at the end of the tunnel there was this desperation and this anxiety and all of these concerns and the the future looked anything but bright all you have to do is turn to Christ and put your faith in Him and in His time remember it took her 12 years and in His way you too like her can find hope in your hopelessness we look then at the life that Christ gives to this daughter It's almost as if Matthew, sort of after that interruption or that that little interlude, he goes back to the original story. And When I originally studied this, I was going to leave that section about the woman out. We're going to put it all together at the end. But I believe God, in his divine intervention, put these the way that he did for a purpose, and we're going to look at them together. And so now Matthew goes back to the Father and Jesus. Now, after the interlude, going back toward the house. And we learn by the other narratives that as they're making their way back to the house, a messenger comes, and the messenger delivers a message that is not a very favorable message. I remember when I used to be a chaplain for the police department in Soto, Texas. I used to have to do death notifications, and they're not very. I mean, it's the most unfavorable thing. I I, I never. Do you do some of those, Gail? They're horrible. And I used to listen to when you deliver a knock on the door and you're standing there with a police officer in full uniform and my badge was out and you would deliver them this death notification. The screams that would often come from the soul of an agonizing person would literally wreak havoc and hound me for days. Um, You just never forget them. And this messenger brought a message to this father that his daughter had in fact died while he was gone. And I can't imagine the grief of the father and what came from his soul at that moment. But we know by the other gospels that Jesus turns to him and says, don't lose faith. Don't lose faith. You know, it kind of reminds me of a best friend of his that died and the sisters came. His name is Lazarus. and said he's died. And he says, don't lose faith, ladies. Don't lose faith. I'm here. Because Jesus can transcend death and transform death into life. And so we see in the account, of according to Matthew, verse 23, that because of the delay, and when Jesus came to the ruler's house, there was a delay. I don't know what you're waiting on, but there may be a delay. But just because there's a the delay in what you need does not necessarily mean that he not, he's not active, that he's not intervening, that he's not working, because Jesus was always about his father's business. And through that delay, they discover something when they come to the home, verse 23, and they saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. The funeral had already started, actually. It had. And, and they, they sometimes took at least a week to celebrate the death of their loved one and because of this guy was a ruler and he was prominent he probably was pretty wealthy they had already got some professional mourners to come imagine that hiring professional mourners to come to your funeral and they brought the orchestra with them and they were playing songs of sadness and grief and loss And the family and the friends were wailing, and there was a a loud cry because this little 12-year-old girl had died. I mean, they were lamenting her death. And Jesus walks in to this whole scenario in which the memorial service has already started. And then he then demands something in verse 24. He says to them, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but he is sleeping. How would you like to be in a funeral service where someone walks in and says, Stop the service? They're not dead like you think they are, they're really alive. Now, Jesus is not saying that the young girl is napping, so don't, don't mistake that. She's physically dead. But he's saying to them, she is not dead as you suppose that she is. Because I am the life. And because I am the life, I have come to infuse life into her. And notice now the reaction of the crowd in their disbelief. And they laughed at him. They laughed at him. This word for laughter is a word which means contempt. They ridiculed him. They were contemptual against him, they, they criticized him, they, they mocked him. You are insane, Jesus. There's no way in the world. Remember, Jesus had not healed anybody or had not raised anybody from the dead until this point. They believed and they had seen in Capernaum that Jesus had healed you know, many various diseases and had cast out demons, but to raise someone from the dead, well, that's just, ha, <laughs> ha, that's an impossibility, man. Let me ask you something, have you ever told God that? That my condition, my need, my situation is greater than you, God. And so they laughed in disbelief. But notice the deliverance of Jesus, verse 25. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. Jesus assumes authority over the crowd and he pushes them out. You're gone, dude. Everybody's out, and he just takes command, and in his authority, he walks over to the little girl, and he touches her. He does exactly as the father had requested, not a word, a touch, and he touches the little girl, and life is breathed into her lifeless body, and she rises up, and as he presents her to the family that is in the room... And the disciples that are there, and as they walk out into the courtyard where the mourners had been previously mourning her death, she is now alive. And the Bible says that reputation about what he did spread throughout the region, as it should. So here's how we put it all together. We started out the message with a a passage that the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 3.10. Where he says that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I'm convinced Easter is not just something we celebrate. It's something we possess. It's something that should be ours. the Apostle Paul is saying in Philippians 3.10 that through a personal relationship with Jesus as my Savior and my Lord, I now, through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection, I now live. And I now live this life not in my own power, but I live it in the power of the resurrection of Christ who lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death. But when he rose, he defeated Satan's sin and death for all eternity for those who would place their faith and trust in him why? Because Jesus has the power to transcend your sin and transform your life by breathing new life into your dead body. That's what the resurrection means for those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus. We are helpless. Romans 3:23 says, "For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God." All of us have one thing in common, we are sinners. That means we have failed to live up to the standard of God. We have either done what he has said we should not do, or we have failed to do what he asked us to do. You say, well, when, when, when have I ever sinned? You ever told a lie? Anybody in here never told one single lie? Anybody here? I'm glad we don't have a group of liars in here. We've all lied. And the commandment says, thou shalt not lie. That's very simple. But there are many commandments that we have broken, numerous. But because we are born in sin, we have a tendency to sin, I don't know about you, but I've never had to teach a child how to be good, I mean how to be bad, I had to teach him how to be good, right? You were born a sinner, you were born rebellious, you were born with a, with a sinful nature, and you choose to sin, and because we are born sinners, and we have sinned against God, the wage, that which we have earned, is death, not life. We are helpless to do anything about our condition, and yet Jesus was willing to come in and to take our helplessness, and to help us with our sin condition by taking upon himself our sin on the cross and dying in our place. Without Christ, we're hopeless. But the Bible says in Romans 6.23, For the wage of sin is death. In our sin, there is no hope. But the Bible says in Romans 6.23, It's a beautiful promise, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus, there is hope. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, would not die, but would have love. Have what? Would have what? Eternal life. For God so loved you that he gave his one and only son to die on the cross for you, so that as you place your faith and trust in him, You would have and know the power of the resurrection. And you would have not only life in this life, abundant life, but eternal life with him in heaven. He gives life to the lifeless when we put our faith, trust, and hope in him. So I ask you, have you today, or can you today, say what the Apostle Paul said? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Do you know the power of his resurrection in your life? Has he transcended your sin problem and transformed your life?